welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first chat and conversation with our guest, Dr. Alex Klein, who's a psychologist, and I'm super excited to have him. So thank you for being here, Alex. Thanks so much for having me, Casey. It's a thrill to be with you here today. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read your bio and talk a little bit about how we met for those watching and listening. And then we can dive into some conversation and interview questions, and we'll just see where things go, if that sounds good. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Dr. Alex Klein, he's a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in psychological assessments for children and adults, couples, and family therapy, neurodevelopmental differences, such as autism spectrum conditions and ADHD, and parenting. He received his doctorate in clinical psychology from the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, and he has obtained extensive training in child, adolescent, and adult psychotherapy and assessment with clients who present with a range of diagnoses. He lives in the Bay Area with his wife and five-year-old twin daughters. Is there anything you would like to add to that? No, I think that's a nice general overview. Uh, other than that, I used to work uh, full-time at Kaiser uh, Permanente, one of the big hospital systems out here for many years, and then more recently in uh, full-time private practice. Awesome. Very good. So Dr. Klein and I met because about three years ago, he attended a conference for the International Council on Development and Learning, which is a DIR floor time-based nonprofit. And my best friend from high school's husband is a social worker in New York City and attended the conference and saw your presentation on pathological demand avoidance as a clinician and he emailed me and he was like you have to get in touch with this guy he's working in the same field that you're working in with your business and so i reached out to dr klein and he responded right away and he was very kind and lovely and here we are three years later after having collaborated on both the research that we're working on with the university of michigan and actually shared some insights between our work with parents to strengthen the support that we provide to parents raising PDA children and teens. So it was definitely serendipity that has led us here, but I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Klein to this community. So thank you. Thank you, Casey. And it's been great to get to know you as well. And uh, I've learned so much from you. Uh, so uh, thank you for the work that you've been doing, putting out there. Yeah, man, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the idea that Dr. Klein and I had was to do a monthly series of what we're calling like casual fireside chats about our work in the PDA and parenting space. As you guys know, I am not a clinician. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have a therapeutic or medical background. And so it was really exciting for me to have this opportunity to bring Dr. Klein's perspective and experience with a clinical background and expertise in the content area of neuro neurodevelopmental disorders and neurodiversity and autism and ADHD. So we're going to be doing that and we're going to be crowdsourcing questions from you guys in the audience. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube, you're going to get to participate. But since it's our first time with Dr. Klein, we are going to do a bit of an interview so you guys can get to know him and his perspective. So with that in mind, Dr. Klein, will you talk to us about what brought you to your work with neurodiversity in general? 
Yeah, sure. Well, there's a lot there and I'll try to be uh, concise. Uh, you know, certainly I think my own difficulties, particularly in school growing up and later sort of realizing that my ADHD was a real central factor in, in some of the challenges I'd experienced. So, you know, I think that I certainly had a you know, a bit of an attunement to, you know, what are some struggles, not just any struggles, but struggles that might be sort of underneath the surface a little bit, like not super obvious to people, but uh, still quite impactful. So I think I've had my own sort of personal experiences along those lines, personal experiences in my in my family and family members. Um, certainly, you know, the work experiences I've had, you know, I started working more generally with with kids as a you know teacher in a in a preschool and then later in a school for older with older kids in a special ed classroom you know as a psychologist I've also you know had roles working with kids and adults of all you know of all types of of diagnoses and presentations and not specifically neurodivergence but certainly there's been a bit of a specialty that's sort of been you know increasing over time so the amount of specialized work I'm doing in the, in in the field of neurodivergence I think for me you know, the, there's a real social justice element to it, because I think a lot of the kids that I have seen, and this is relevant to adults too, I, you know, I've primarily been a child psychologist, but I've certainly expanded my work to more and more adults and couples and therapies and such too. But, you know, certainly, I think that I've been quite sort of disenchanted with my field. And so mm. I feel like, you know, sort of, a, that it's quite important to sort of show families advocate within the field of sort of another way of sort of understanding people, you know, understanding development. And, you know, so a lot of my work is kind of centered on that, like centered around really trying to help people, you know, help families understand their kids, help parents understand themselves or adults understand th themselves and their own dynamics and neurodivergence and how that plays out. And again, I think that, you know, our society doesn't really do a great job of, of supporting that always, and, and particularly with kids with a PDA profile. So I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, that's a bit about how I got into it. I love that. So mm -hmm. it sounds like ADHD experience for you was one of the things that attuned you, as you said, to these unique kids, teens, adults, mm -hmm. individuals. So what specifically, though, brought you to PDA or pathological demand avoidance or pervasive drive for autonomy? You were probably only the second clinician in the U.S. that I knew of who was doing assessments and evaluations of PDA. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. At the time. Right. And there's still not enough of us. Um, so, uh, yeah, we definitely need need more. So I, I would say, you know, before there was a name for it, I, I knew some of these kids, you know, some of these PDAers, yeah. right? You know, but before that, I knew that, you know, starting in the 80s, you know, the psychologist Elizabeth Newsom in the UK, you know, sort of has sort of developed this uh, this idea that there's a subtype on the autism spectrum and it's called PDA. You know, before I even knew any of that, before I'd come across that research several years ago, I sort of, you know, or, or over the years, I've noticed sort of a subtype of kids that really was not responding well to traditional, you know, parenting strategies for, you know, and even strategies that were specific for neurodivergent kids. So, you know, I think that there was sort of a, there's been a lot of advice from clinicians, from pediatricians, you know, from other psychologists in my field, you know, that really have kind of missed the mark with, with, with some kids. And for me, you know, I've never really sort of assumed that we as a field are getting it right. You know, if you take sort of a historical perspective on things, you yeah. know, like we've never gotten it right and we're probably still not getting it right. All we can do is try to do better. And I did notice a bit of a rigidity in my field of like, well, this is what you do when this issue happens and this is how you get compliance. And um, to me, it's, it's always been sort of shocking, you know, when, you know, parents say like, well, that's not working, you know, and that's like, this is what's happening. When we do this thing that you're recommending, or that some clinician or somebody's recommending, you know, it's, it, it's backfiring. But yet there, to me, there wasn't really sort of an adequate shifting of the recommendations and also, you know, shift in how we understand the challenges. So I think that, you know, I was already kind of noticing that kind of thing. 
Um, and then there was sort of a name for it when I came across some years ago. I, I want to say like 2019, 2020, I mean, a while ago. Mm-hmm. And where I was like, wow, you know, it's a bit of a light bulb moment for me. I know a lot of parents talk about the light bulb moment. For me, it was a little bit more as a clinician. And I have had a, so I think that my, you know, passion for understanding PDA really comes from just sort of some increasing awareness that there's another way that we need to be doing things, you know, and we need Mm -hmm. to sort of believe parents when they say that things aren't working and we need to really kind of shift the way we understand certain kids. So for me, you know, this is really critically important. You know, we don't have great outcomes for many autistic people. And of course, not all. And of course, you know, there's so much variability, but again, I just haven't been assuming that we're getting it right. So I guess part of it is sort of my trying to sort of adapt the recommendations and my understanding based on what I'm seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's hard to ignore the statistic about autistic lifespan being between yes. 36 and 54 years. Yeah. And and I often think about that when we hear like gold standard and evidence-based studies about like, well, this works. And and what does works mean? Because yeah, maybe the kid was compliant during a session, (laughs) but long-term, how is it impacting their stress levels, their self-concept, et cetera? So yeah, compliant at a cost, right? Compliant at a cost, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I don't have this question written down, but it just came up. When you started tuning into these kids and started to learn about PDA as a subtype with a name of the autism spectrum. How were you met by other colleagues, peers, psychologists in the space that you were working? Was there pushback or did you find a receptivity? Yeah, I think that I've experienced some of the same pushback that parents, unfortunately, in a more extreme way, experience all a lot. Uh, you know, from my from my experience, I mean, most parents, ninety percent or more, kind of have stories around, you know, the pushback they've received when they've said, "Well, these strategies aren't working," or they or they've come across PDA and they've you know brought it up to their pediatrician or their therapist who says, like, "Well, that's not a you know an official diagnosis," so therefore we can't treat that or that's not a thing, you know, lots of invalidation. So I think for me, you know, you know, I think I've sort of been careful to some extent to sort of, you know, talk about it when people are coming to me with it, like with clients, although sometimes I will have a family who, you know, hasn't heard of PDA and I might be the one to suggest it. That's certainly happened before. Certainly I've had uh, many clients where that's happened. And then if they need more specialized coaching, I've referred to you, Casey, you know, in, in many, in many instances, but yeah. So I think that I'm sure many people know, you know, it's not something that's recognized right in sort of by, by it's not like a specific insurance code for PDA. There's not a specific sort of like clear research-based treatment plan for PDAers that's had, you know, tons and tons of research. And that's one of the areas that you, Casey, are doing an amazing job, you know, trying to, to work on and others doing a really great job trying to work on. Um, so I'd say I have received some negativity, you know, and it's not just for PDA strategies. It's a little bit of like, well, ABA is what's evidence-based. And so therefore mm-hmm. that's what we recommended. Yeah. I mean, and so, and that's not something that I, I believe, of course. So I think that, you know, some of the pushback has been more general when I've been a little bit more like there's ways other than ABA here. And let's think about why and let's yeah. think about how to imp- implement these other ways. So I have had some pushback, but I also tend to, you know, try to connect with people like you, Casey, who have uh, much more, uh, are, are, you know, experts in this already. So, well, thanks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we've all experienced it. So I'm so interested to hear how you answer the next question, because this is something that I think about a lot. As a clinician, how do you understand what pathological demand avoidance is? And I'm using the term, I'm using Elizabeth Newson's term because it's what has the longest track record and we're building on previous knowledge, not as like sure. an advocacy statement that it should be that way. <laughs> I get it. You mean in terms of the language we're using? Yeah, the, the language. Diagnosis. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, so your questions around, so how do I understand it? Right. So I, I mean, to me, 
I really liked your framing, Casey, around like a nervous system disability, first of all, right? Because I think that one of the core features of, of PDA is I think of as this overactivated stress response system, where things that are seen as maybe, you know, another person or another parent sort of, you know, might seem quite benign, quite, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, can you come to, you know, come to the table for dinner? Oh, go, go brush your teeth, you know, things that like might, we might not know are going to really trigger somebody. And it might be understandable that we wouldn't know that. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that overactivated stress response system is a very core thing. And it's not just with anything. I mean, I think as, as you know, this is really when one's uh, sense of control and autonomy is threatened, right? So that there's sort of a sense of a lack of, of choice there mm -hmm. for the person. So that is what I see as sort of some of the core a core feature of PDA for sure. Uh, and there's more there to it, but I think that if I had to boil it down to a couple core concepts, that's what I would say. Yeah. What do you, what, how do you, how do you sort of answer that one? That's a tough one. Yeah. You know? So no, in a very similar way. So the way that I, the most parsimonious way that I've found to define it is a survival drive for autonomy and equality that consistently overrides other survival instincts. Mm. Parentheses, toileting, eating, sleeping, hygiene, safety. Yeah. Um, and that that's because this, the perception of autonomy, freedom, choice, and equality or control or being above someone in the moment is so strong, it, in the moment it can actually override our survival instinct to eat or it can right. happen in the long term with accumulated stressors. And that's yeah. when you see that burnout or like reaching the threshold in a way that seems like a regression. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's like, I like that. how I have defined it in a way that hopefully distinguishes it from A, other forms of demand avoidance and also B, trauma because of the root cause. Like trauma has all the same nervous system mechanisms, but the root causes could be like evocative cues instead of the perception of autonomy and equality. And also distinguishing between non-PDA autism demand avoidance or other forms of demand avoidance because it won't necessarily in the moment override those other survival instincts those other survival instincts will kick in got it and yeah that, i really like that framing and can speaks to how you know how severe this can be right how yeah scary this can be right yeah and and i think what makes it hard for those from the outside looking in if we don't have a conceptual understanding is that two PDA kids can look so different on this dimension, right? So like one could have this internalized or freeze pathway where it's like more shut down and then that's impacting their ability to speak and sleep, right? They stop sleeping, they stop speaking. But then you have a kid like mine, my son, who is fight flight, super defiant, oppositional, violent, explosive. Those are the terms you would see and hear from him and he's sleeping fine, but he stops walking and eating, right? So like in both cases, right. it's a nervous system response and a basic need impacted, but it looks totally different if both show up in the ER. Get it. I totally get it. And I love that way of, of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've come to this because of how many people have argued with me, right? Like that's often yeah. like, like, are like, how can I articulate this in a way that other people can understand what I see, right? Like what you saw with your clients and what I see with my son and the other families I've worked with. What is the common argument? Is it like, no, this is just like him manipulating you or like, oh, this is just him trying to get out of something he doesn't want to do or oh i think like the biggest there's multiple primary points of pushback right one is how is this different than autism mm -hmm. another one right. is how do you know it's not behavioral and that he's right. not doing this in a manipulative way and you know it, you can't necessarily in the moment prove the causality between what's going on in his brain and why he's not eating yeah but a parent can see it right over time yeah yeah and then you know the silly arguments i think are the ones that are like well it's a debate so we can't say anything about it or like there's not in the dsm-5 and just like 
you know, both of us have gone through doctorate degrees and know that like new knowledge is produced through debate and like, right. Exactly. I don't know. What are the arguments that you sounds like evidence, you know, ABA is the only evidence base. Everything you just said, honestly. Right. You know, I mean, in particular, the sort of, I think there's sort of a misunderstanding of sort of the intentionality, right? So, you know, this gets into the won't versus can't of, you know, challenges coming up. Like, it just seems like they just won't do what you, you know, say, but they could if you were a little more, you know, harsher, like didn't let them get away with it so much. Or, you know, if you just push them a little more consistently, then everything would be fine, right? This is sort of some iteration of this argument is really, really common. I think what what we know to be true is that that's true of some people, right? You know, yeah. but not not true of everybody, not true of PDAers, where there can be an enormous, you know, cost, as we said before, right? Yeah. Of of doing these types of things. And and in my experience, you know, parents come to me with really good instincts about their kids. Right. And, yeah. and I think there's often sort of a history of, again, feeling invalidated, you know, feeling dismissed by, by providers in, in my field and other fields. But, you know, oftentimes the, the gut instincts that I'm hearing are, are right on, you know, that I, I really agree with. And I, I sometimes feel like the field you know, that I'm a part of kind of pushes parents away from their gut instinct. And, so, and that's a real problem, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. This is a little bit of a caveat, but I was trained as a political scientist Mm -hmm. and the underlying logic for all human behavior was rational choice and they modeled it off of econometric models. So like Mm. any quote irrational behavior didn't exist. (laughs) Like everything had to be rational and maximizing utility. And I remember this is a little dorky, but there's this game theory assumption about like, if you have two types of pie, right? Like you have apple pie and cherry pie. Mm -hmm. And if I like apple pie between the two, and then someone adds blueberry, it's not going to change my preferences between the apple pie and cherry pie. But like, that's exactly what it would do to my son, a PDAer who's like, mm. <laughs> you know, if yes. I'm changing the, if I'm imposing a change in the dynamic, then his mm. preferences might switch from apple to cherry, which according right. to being trained should not happen. <laughs> I see. Yes. Right. Well, that gets into, I think that there's a way that, you know, PDAers really, you know, uh, I, I think allow us to challenge a lot of assumptions we have, right? It's like around how, you know, ki- kids will be good if we make them good, you know, in some way, or, you know, kids must be compliant and, you know, we must be able to control them and do what we say, right? And of course we want to keep kids safe and, and challenge them to grow. Right? It's not a black and white thing, but I think, you know, I've definitely found that um, the PDAers, you know, help us challenge more broadly poor disciplinary practices in general, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's not just specific to the autism population. Like I say this to families a lot. Like I think that like if you've sort of been reading about, you know, let's say you go to the PDA Society's website and there's, you know, a nice, uh, you know, list and description of helpful approaches uh, to addressing, you know, PDA related challenges. And, you know, I tell families a lot that, you know, if you're finding that that's really working well for your kid, you know, like regardless of whether they are, they've had the assessment for PDA, regardless of whether somebody's validated that for you or not. I mean, those are healthy, good strategies that might lead to less stress in your home. You know, it's not like we're talking about giving a kid like an antibiotic when they don't need one. It's not like that kind of thing, right? Like this is something that is sort of really, I think, better strategies in general. I think, you know, with with both of my kids, you know, like one of them might be, you know, quite less challenging than the other around us, you know, trying to get a certain thing done. But I, I would absolutely use the same PDA-like strategies for both the kids, uh, because I just think that's a more respectful way to communicate with people, you know, and, and children are people, I don't think they're really seen that way. Uh, You know, I've been thinking a lot more about the role of sort of childism, right, this term childism, and and how, 
you know, things that we would never do to an adult, like we can do to kids. And like, why is that? You know, it's, I, I think, again, the PDAers, I think, have helped me to really sort of take a step back and, and, and reflect on my own views of, of, of parenting, of, you know, how we control or don't control people and kids. And, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love it. Okay, so here's a question I get asked all the time, and I kind of respond often with like an agnostic response because it's not necessarily my question to answer, and you can pass the buck on it too, but I'm going to ask it anyways. (laughs) So do you believe that PDA is by definition always a part of the autism spectrum, or can a child or teen be PDA without being autistic? Such a great question. I think the first answer is that, that I say, because I do get asked this as well, is that we need more research, you know, to really understand, you know, PDA as a construct, you know, as a concept that, you know, everyone sort of has a clear definition in our minds about what we're really talking about here. And I think, you know, we've talked about this in, in, in the past, but, you know, there's many types of demand avoidance, right? So sometimes it's like, are we talking about, you know, PDA demand avoidance? We're talking about different kinds of demand avoidance. But I think that when you sort of described in your definition, Casey, of, of, of PDA as sort of, you know, nervous system disability overriding survival instincts. I mean, in my experience, the kids that have the most extreme, you know, PDA or like a full blown PDA profile, let's say, to me, they're also kind of more generally meeting autism criteria, although it is almost universally. Well, so I see a a disproportionate amount of folks who broader autism spectrum diagnosis has been missed because of broader stereotypes about autism. That's Mm -hmm. a big thing like, oh, your, your kid looked at me in the eyes or like, oh, he's social and wants friends. Therefore, he can't be autistic. We know that's not true. And that's based on stereotypes. But um, so that's one thing I, I keep in mind. But I think that am I seeing kind of full-blown PDA profiles outside of the autism spectrum? Not really. I would say that I see PDA flavors, though, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I still think that I still see PDA flavors and traits outside of the autism spectrum. But again, I think that's gonna be an easier question to answer, like as we get more research into this. Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah, how how do you think about that? So curious. Yeah, so you know, I'm not a clinician or in the medical field like you are in the same way. So, like, I often think of things through an identity lens and like out of my own curiosity <laughs> and also for the you know for the community um ran a poll on like if you identify as pda do you also identify as autistic mm. and it was i think there was like 150 respondents and it was like 67% definitive yes and then it was like 20% were unsure and then the remaining were no and mm. so you know that's sort of in the space of like my coaching and my work with families is much more in the like self-concept and identity space in the Mm -hmm. research side of things i think it might be a different answer and again i don't know the answer but i do think there can be a distribution of cases and so what i think of as like usually the families i work with are those who like it is a nervous system disability rather than difference and yes most of those children are autistic although not every family has received the autism diagnosis once the response starts to come down they actually see it more right it's often like that heightened nervous system can totally obscure some of the patterns we might be able to see in social communication differences but usually i mean i think there can be a causal mechanism with the root cause of like the perception of a lack of autonomy or equality that sets off a fight flight without it being a disability, Mm -hmm. right? Without it impeding access to those basic needs. I would never tell an adult or a parent like, no, your child is autistic if you believe they're PDA because that's not my role. Yeah. And I have, you know, one thing that had kind of comes to mind with this, I think is interesting, um, is that I think sometimes because 
once you get an autism label, you're going to get pressure from pediatrician, therapists, or whoever in most places, not, not everywhere, but most of the time to do ABA, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think some parents sort of are a little fearful of the autism label, potentially for that reason, or, or, or potentially because there's a fear Maybe it's, it has to do with some stigma around the the label of autism too, right? There's you know that could be a factor for some people. Yeah. Or again, like a fear that if that is sort of identified, if anything other than PDA is mentioned, then people are going to do things for my kid that are not good for them, that are harmful for them. Mm. So there can be that place of, of of fear. So I think sometimes when I hear that question, you know, like upon further exploration with a family, like different things along those lines come up. Yeah. Yeah. And with my work with families, I've in my own life, actually, like once my son's nervous system activation came down and he started speaking more and we started accommodating more and he stopped masking or retreating from us as much, you know, he would do much more stimming, some of it very joyful. Right. And he would Mm. actually talk to me, which he Mm -hmm. never really did. He would say, stop talking or growl or like, shout or distract or you know pretend to be a cat and so when we actually started to have a connection i could see where the social communication was different whereas before when he was just sort of reactive it just seemed like paradoxical or unusual behavior right so sometimes i find that parents can see it more and that can be scary for them right when the behavior starts to come down they're like oh, my child may actually be autistic, right? Right. Um, That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that definitely occurred with my son. You know, I hold parents very lightly when there's resistance. And I'm just like, we don't have to decide. Like, it's an empirical question whether or not these accommodations support your kid. We can experiment. I love that. Data. If it doesn't work, we look through a different lens. Like we're not attached to this as like, we don't want to repeat the like ABA thing, right? Of like, right. this is the only way to do things. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that there's, you know, getting into the nitty gritty with any given family. I mean, it is, this is tough to navigate because we talk a lot about in PDA, you know, and appropriately so, uh, lowering demands, right? Um, and, you know, that is such a difficult shift for some for some people. And I understand that. I mean, there's the way we were parented, the way what we think it means to be a quote unquote good parent. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it might not involve lowering demands, right? And, you know, sometimes it is tricky. Like, how do you find the right sort of homeostasis in the equilibrium of sorts, like within any given family of so, yeah, like, I know my kid needs like totally lower demands, but like, the use of the screen isn't really like working. And like, he doesn't seem happy, you know, that way. We're not, you know, I don't know. So like, are there ways we can sort of shift it a little bit or find some way, you know, to, and I'm a big fan of collaborative problem solving, but that uh, Ross Green, the psychologist who wrote um, The Explosive Child talks about, but I, I do think that it's, it's really, really, really tricky sometimes to kind of find that right balance. Yeah. And it takes a lot of trial and error. And I think it also, I think what's hardest is that often we have to go the hardest with shifting our behaviors parents in in the moment when it feels the most counterintuitive right so it's like now with my son four years later it's like i can ask him to get up and get his own pirate's booty if he needs it from the couch right and he's not gonna like go into a panic attack a lot of times i still deliver it to him but i know i have that window of tolerance but when he was at his most violent, and I'm using that word because I know it resonates with parents and because that's what it felt like as a mother, because it was like physically, <laughs> that was when I needed to lower the demands completely, right? So it's yeah. like in the very beginning, trying to dig out of nervous system burnout and reestablish a relationship, I had to go the yeah. exact opposite direction. Yeah, totally. Makes complete sense. And then like, I think your son's so lucky that you recognize to do that. That's so hard. You're going against the grain here. I mean, how many people you haven't told me this, but I mean, how many people told you not to do that? How many people told you to do other stuff? A lot, right? Many, many. I mean, my story is the same, I think, as every parent that comes to you 
and finds you. Yeah. Like by the time they right. come to your office, they're demolished, right? Like they don't yeah. trust themselves. They don't trust others, you know? Right. Like, right. I, I wish I could say it was like this mindful, altruistic Zen decision. It, but it, like a lot of parents, I was at the point of like absolute despair and, and knowing like, I know that I've done everything I could according to what people told me. And I know it's not working. So we have like, we have to try something different. Right. And I just yeah. hope that in the near future we can support parents before they get to that breaking point and that's part of why i'm passionate about the work that both of us do is because yeah. i don't want families to like break like-minded right. truly right. bring them to the breaking point yeah so yeah of course it's hard stuff okay mm -hmm. i love that answer You've mentioned collaborative problem solving and lowering demands, and you touched upon screens as being a double-edged sword, which we know, like it can be regulating on one side of the brain wiring and dysregulating on another. But what are some of the approaches that you found most helpful for supporting PDA children and teens, either in your direct work or in your support and therapy with parents raising PDA children and teens? Yeah, and a lot of the work I've been doing over the years, I mean, I spent many years working with children directly, I've sort of taken, um, you know, more of a, an interest in sort of working with parents and school systems and advocating for, you know, the systems around the child to really understand the child differently and, you know, place that right level of demand. So I mean, I think more than any one specific approach, you know, there, there's like several, I think, really important concepts that I think about, you know, one is, you know, is, is to think about, is there a gap between our expectation of the kid and the kid's actual ability in any given moment? Um, and so this is kind of a loaded thing, right? Because I think that, you know, for those who, you know, families are, you know, where there has been an autism diagnosis, you know, we, we, we think, you know, historically, the messages have been terrible, like, oh, your kid's autistic, like, therefore, you shouldn't have any expectations for them. And they're going to end up in a institution or, you know, these sort of horrible things that, you know, like, you know, they, they used to take away kids from their families, because yeah. the thought was that would be better for the kids to take them away and put them in an institution or something like that. So, you know, really awful, painful, traumatic stuff. So we don't want to sort of obviously go in that extreme. But what we do have with many PDAers is, you know, is this concept of a hidden disability, right, where it's yeah. like not that obvious what the nature of the disability is to other people. And when it's not clear, right, that is sort of a ripe ground for, uh, you know, like having that mismatch between expectation and, and ability. And it's a ever changing dynamic, right? As I said before, we're trying to find the right equilibrium for your family. So I'm constantly trying to look at, does the parents sort of understand why a kid is doing what they're doing, why it's not intentional, right? Like why we need to sort of, again, lower demand in a particular moment or day or month or year. So that's something I think about. I do think that the you know, CPS model, collaborative and proactive solutions or collaborative problem solving that I've, I mentioned before with Ross Green, I mean, I think that that is a way where you have these sort of really tough issues where like, hey, I know you don't want to take your medication, you know, tell me what makes it hard, you know, and, you know, trying to sort of, this can be easier said than done for many families. But I, I mean, I think that the model, first of all, helps us with the right framing, like, let's have the right lens around how we understand the behaviors and the underlying challenges, but then trying to get a kid have uh, who to be engaged a little bit in the problem solving process. So there's more of a sense of control. And we all know for PDAers, like, that's, going to be less threatening to their stress response system if it's not like this is what we're going to do like i you're not going to get your screen unless you get your yeah. you know homework done or whatever right like we're, we're going about this in a different way so i do talk about that model in various ways you know depending on the age and the abilities of the kid thinking about what are the hidden stressors for kids throughout the day i mean that's a really critical thing you know again because the disability is hidden i don't think that we often really know right and the kid may or may not be able to tell us the kid may know and not tell us the kid may not know 
how mm-hmm. dysregulated they are when they had to go to the cafeteria, you know, how, how hard that is, but, and they can't really tell us when they get home from school, but we might need to be the, that sort of stress detective, right. To kind of figure out like, what are the hidden sources of stress? So that's a concept I'm constantly talking about. I do really like the concept of spoon theory that some of you've heard of maybe where it's like, you know, do I have the sort of how much gas is in the tank to get the thing done? You know, that's a really important concept, right? That, that again, I think that can move up and down, right? Again, and and hopefully our expectations can move with it, right? You know, the adults around the child, if it's a child, hopefully our, our expectations, the kid can sort of again, sort of get match up with where their abilities are in any given moment. I I think I'm largely really, you know, trying to help people, you know, both reduce the stress, right? You know, it's that concept of managing the stress, not the behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So we're always going to the root causes you talk about so eloquently um, that I really agree with. Um, and, um, so that's a concept I'm really talking about always figuring out, well, why is this problem happening and what should we change? Sometimes I'm recommending environmental changes. Like, look, this is just too hard to have both siblings have that much unstructured time. So is it feasible to have somebody with you doing something else? You know, like, can we sort of try to be proactive and preventative, right? A lot of people want to know, like, well, what do I do when he's, throwing, you know, the pencil at me and, you know, tipping over the, you know, the table or, you know, she's, you know, running out out of the classroom and and screaming or whatever it is. And to me, it's like, well, once we've hit that red zone, you know, that sort of fight or flight moment, I mean, there's a bit of variability, but largely I think it's more like time is the only thing that is in your, is that that's going to work there. Right. So like, how do we, get through those minutes or hour, hopefully not hours, but, you know, get through those minutes, minimizing the damage. And then how do we use it as a learning experience for the next time about how to potentially prevent that? Like, oh, he was extra stressed because like, you know, he couldn't watch the thing he wanted and A, B and C, you know, had this sort of cost, you know, to his nervous system. So therefore, you know, let's use this as a learning experience and see if can we to the best extent we can. I mean, parents can be doing an A plus job and not prevent all the problems. I mean, it's just not possible, right? Totally. Like, things are going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the curveballs are in life are inevitable, but doing the best we can to try to have that sort of preventative approach. So those are some of the main concepts I'm talking about. It's kind of a long answer. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of what I talk about could come down to some iteration of that. Nice. Do you have any examples of what progress for a PDA child or teen might look like? So for example, like I often encourage parents to collect very incremental data as we're starting to shift things like on three dimensions, basic needs, shifts, um, connection, and nervous system activation. So like we might track duration, frequency, and intensity. And then we might see like a month into an accommodation approach instead of an hour long meltdown every day where there's physical destruction, there's like a 10 minute meltdown every day and it's more screaming and throwing things away from the parent. (laughs) So like it's super incremental. They're still having meltdowns or, you know, the child instead of kicking the mom off the couch might like put their feet under her thighs two months into an accommodation approach. And that's like an indicator of connection, right? And then when we see sort of transformational stuff like going back to school or you know, joining a sports team or the child or teen stepping into their identity and like owning it and loving it. Like that happens over the course of years, right? Like my son's four years into an accommodation approach and it's only now that it's like, oh my gosh, he's like playing a sport, right? So, you know, we have those two ways of looking at it long-term and the incremental, which is usually where I'm working with parents because we don't spend years together but it's the foundation. Do you have any anecdotes or or examples you you could share or you can anonymize and combine if that makes it easier? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of so many do- dozens or 
hundreds even of, of cases that sort of come, come to mind, right? And, you know, I mean, a lot of families I work with are in some iteration of, of being, you know, in it, as I say, you know, or in, in the struggle to some yeah. extent. And we're sort of helping, you know, wade, wade through that the best we can. And then, of course, some are getting to much better place over time. So, I mean, you, I think, said it quite well when you mentioned, you know, nervous system activation, uh, the relationship and the connection. I think there was a third thing you mentioned. The basic needs. So, yeah, you know, things like, you know, I'll have parents report their wins each week of like, oh, like after two months of the accommodation approach, my 13-year-old son has moved back into his bedroom and out of our bed after a year. You know, those are huge wins. Those are huge wins of like, okay, the nervous system has come down enough so that teen can actually sleep in their own room or trying a new food for a kid who's restricting eating or those types of indicators. I had one program participant, I think this happened before she even started the program, so I won't take credit for it. But when she started using a low, low demand accommodation approach, her daughter gained 20% BMI after mm-hmm. being at like such a low percentage that it was like terrifying for her yeah. and the clinicians. So like true indicators that can help us see like this is connected right but it's often in retrospect like we have to try something different and see how things shift but we can't prove it beforehand because it's all happening inside the body and the brain of a child yeah yeah i mean i think the the sort of key integrated indicators of growth are along the lines of what you've said. I also think about in terms of, again, the systems around the, the child, if we're talking about a child, the systems around the child, so like parents are understanding the root cause, understanding the why, um, because I think that typically, and it's not always true, and it's not going to be consistently true for most of the time. But typically, if they really understand, like, well, you know, this child's sort of extremely high need for control, extremely overactivated stress response system is what is sort of at the root of these issues. Like, typically, that then changes the behavior of of the adults around the kid, because they kind of get it a little bit more. So I mean, sometimes that's a metric is like, are people really getting it right? Are, are, you know, the the adults around the kids, is the school knowing that you know what, it's like way too hard to try to make this kid do writing, but maybe we'll give five minutes where they can just talk about their thoughts about this thing they're supposed to write about, yes. and maybe I'll jot it down, right? Excellent. Or, yes. Yes. Lower yeah. the demand so, of the writing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of like thinking about, right, like, you know, how the, the growth in the adults around the kids. So, but to your point, you know, with, with a child, I mean, absolutely, like the degree of, you know, connectedness. And I think that we always want to see if we can kind of proactively create more positive connection, more, you know, more co-regulated interactions with kids, because I think that, you know, that can be something that really gets lost when we feel like we always have to, you know, be walking on eggshells and I can't get my kid to do anything. So I think that, you know, sometimes as I think we've, we've lowered demands more, that becomes a little easier to kind of like, like, let's get your kid giggling. Let's get your kid, you know, agreeing to, to just to sit with you and talk about what they're doing or let's get, you know, so I think that, you know, it's the relate, you know, the poor, the relationship, the connection increases between parent and child, you know, that's, that certainly signifies growth. I think that mm. there's a lot, you know, with couples and sometimes it's couples therapy and sometimes one of the, you know, core things is around getting parents on the same page, right? So I, I see if, you know, the ability to kind of get on the same page around, our understanding and our approach like that to me, you know, indicates important growth that can have long-term positive benefits, you know, for oh everybody. My yeah. Yeah. For everybody in the family system. Yeah. I mean, and then more concretely, right. Like just sort of more harmony, less conflict, less dysregulation. Totally. Yeah. I think parents are the catalyst. So like a lot of times people will go through my program <laughs> and luckily they're happy about it, but they're like, halfway through the program, they're like, oh, I'm realizing this is more about me than about my kid, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, as soon as they truly accept their child and some of the trade-offs that come with that, then they start to truly relax and signal felt safety to the child. And then their nervous system is less activated and it becomes like a virtuous cycle upwards rather than like a vicious cycle downwards of power struggles, right? 
So it's yeah. like the school and the parent around them really like creates that safety. Yeah. And then par- paradoxically, like, like, you know, I think sometimes what I see is that we've sort of lowered demands, you know, and, uh, you know, appropriately lowered demands to a point where there's not this sort of highly stressed, activated kid. And then, you know, at some point it becomes more bandwidth to get the kid to take the shower or so. So, you know, I mean, I think sometimes parents think that, you know, oh, if we don't stay consistent and just like make him brush his teeth twice a day and, you know, make him shower every other day or whatever it is, like we're going to lose that ability, right? Because we're not consistent about it. And like, these are the messages that we heard growing up or that clinicians in my field will will, will send, you know, but it, sometimes it's not that simple, right? Like actually we've sort of built up more of a, a you know, foundation of trust and safety and, and tolerance so that then your kid can do some of these more priority items, you know, that you want mm-hmm. them to do. So I do often see a link between, right, like getting closing that gap between expectations, ability in a moment. And once we've closed the gap, then we could also inch up our expectations at some point, right? Or, or the kids or kids will surprise us to just do the thing that was so hard. So I do see this happen. That's why I, I believe in this approach and I support this approach. But again, it's so hard to find the just right challenge for kids, you know, when the, the challenges are often invisible. Like if if, yeah. if your kid had like cerebral palsy and a physical disability that made it hard to get their shoes on by themselves, like most people are going to be, you know, c- kind of empathic to that or not have, you know, kind of an angry or irritated reaction to that, right? But if mm-hmm. this is a nervous system disability, when the kid can't get their shoes on because it activated their, you know, their already overactivated stress response system because they didn't have a say in it because they were going to do it anyway. But then when you, you know, told them to do it, then they lost the sense of control. So now they're really not going to do it, even if they were going to do it in the first place, which is a very PDA like thing I see. Then, you know, these these are sort of very hidden to people. So, uh, you know, I've always, I've often had this sort of fantasy that like, you know, there was some kind of, uh, you know, those like mood rings, you know, if, the, if there was some way that there'd be like, they'd like turn a certain color when like, hey, I can handle you telling me to put my shoes on, right? You know, uh, but like, yeah. you know, so like the parent could see like in a very simple way what the color is, but that just doesn't exist, right? We don't have yeah. something that works that well, unfortunately. I think, um, um, yeah. I think a lot of parents learn to be the mood ring. Yeah. You know, like at this point I can like see in my son's brow and eyebrows and the tone of his voice and, the, and like, yeah. I can like feel his energy and I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm gonna put the shoes on for him. But right. it took all that connection and observation yeah. and time to get there. And it, well, and it took you also knowing that, you know, you are still a good parent. And uh, when you are putting your kid who's old enough to put his own shoes on, you're doing it for them. Because yeah. I think that there's these messages that like, no, we must promote independence. And like, you must stay consistent with your, you know, demands. And like, these are stuff that have huge negative costs. And like, I just, I don't think we've had been flexible enough in how we think about that. Yeah, no, totally. It's pervasive in lots of different areas of our society, though. Yes. (laughs) Compliance, control, hierarchy. Yes. Um, Yeah, we could have a whole session on that. Okay, so I'm going to ask one more question to wrap us up. And I think I'll go to your question that you submitted. And you're like, we should talk about this. And I I want to hear your thoughts about it for sure. Uh, Well, I feel like I don't have as many articulate thoughts about it. I don't know if I do either. That's why I pose it as a question, but I'll try. What if if I asked the question and both of us were like, pass? Yeah. (laughs) Let's try it. Yeah. Okay. I'll riff a little bit because it's interesting, right? Yeah. Why do we think there is such an increased interest in PDA over the last couple of years? Yeah. Yeah. I can riff a little bit. I mean, I have some ideas. I don't really know. Right. Um, But I have some ideas on that one. I mean, one is, you know, maybe there's sort of a broader move towards, you know, gentle parenting type approaches, you know, like maybe there's some broader shifts that this sort of like intersects with. That's a thought. Um, I think that 
we more broadly have become more aware of the different ways autistic people can look in that we you know there's been some incremental progress. I mean, there's so much progress needs to happen. It's hard to say there's been progress, but I do think there has been incremental progress in, you know, with the neurodiversity movement, with, you know, people sort of recognizing that, you know, maybe stereotypes aren't quite as pervasive as they once were. And I think, you know, many of the PDAers, right, like the autism might be hard to see. So, you know, this is something that is like parents might sort of latch on to is like, oh, like I have thought autism, it was always like, yeah. they just always said he just had oppositional defiant disorder, but like, I always thought something else was going on. So I think that, you know, maybe there's just sort of like, a, maybe it intersects with this broader recognition of, you know, autism spectrum and the breadth of the spectrum, potentially. And then I also think, I don't know, I mean, maybe there's just sort of more, I think that so many parents have that light bulb moment when they, you know, might come across your, your content, Casey, or, you know, so reading about PDA somewhere that I think that having a name for it has been really helpful. I think that, and again, I think that parents know in their gut that like something is off, you know, like something in the ways that I've been, you know, people are telling me to work with my kids, like just aren't it. Right. And like, mm -hmm. this is a radically different approach what do you mean? Don't tell my kid to like put their shoes on or go to bed or do their homework. Yeah, like, or do what, do you, what do you mean? Like, this is just parenting stuff. Right. You know, but I think again, I mean, there's, there's, I think like a lot of families out there where they kind of know in their guts that something isn't working and that, that they need to change the way they're interacting. So then I think you read, Oh, this is like, not just me you know, being a too, like not being, being as much of a disciplinarian as I need to be or something like that, because that's what somebody told me to do, or that's what, how I was parented or so there might be something to that, but I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. So what do you, do you have other thoughts on that? Um, I think everything you said, I think, I do think social media and a lot of, I think it intersects with the pandemic too, in a couple different ways. Like one, I think a lot of the online advocacy by actually autistic individuals and PDAers, whether on Facebook or Instagram, I think there was a lot of that building awareness yeah. and a lot more people spending time online on TikTok, on Instagram. So like, yeah. Sally Cat, Christy Forbes, um, Harry Thompson, who I know is problematic, but you know, he had a book published that was actually quite informative <laughs> for me, at least mm -hmm. as a mom. So I think that having that name and having a better understanding of the root causes beyond just avoidance, because avoidance is an explanatory and what makes it pathological? Like what if it's avoidance of sensory things that's consistent, right? Like we needed like something to distinguish. I also think a pattern I've observed, and I don't know if this is unique to PDA, but how many kids either didn't start school or had a pause in school and then couldn't go back. Yeah. And they've talked about it like autistic inertia, but also like the realization like, oh, this is a choice, quote, end quote, or like this isn't something I have to do. Like how many PDA kids actually couldn't go back. So like, even when the schools opened again, like they couldn't, especially like the tweens, teens, like have a lot of families whose kids just couldn't ever go back once they did yeah. the online schooling. So that might've precipitated like a whole cohort of families, mm -hmm. right? At the same time, which would produce like a little wave. And then, you know, I think families finding each other through things like PDA North America, PDA Society, the work that I do, the other coaching people out there, you know, seeing in the comment sections, oh, like everybody has the same experience. It like validates. Mm -hmm. It validates and strengthens a parent who has received multiple diagnoses that don't make sense, whereas they had that gut, but didn't believe themselves. They doubted themselves until they saw, oh, 20 other moms had the exact same anecdote, right? Right. And then it's right. like, oh, well, it's not me i'm not making this up right. so i think the pandemic and social media i think did play a significant yeah that's role. a really good point yeah um and social media i heard uh someone talking about it how like 20 2008 oh i think it was arthur brooks 
an interview with Tara Brock. He wrote something about happiness, how like the two seismic shifts in our society were like 20, 2008 and 2009, which was like the explosion of social media and then the pandemic. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I also wonder, like, you know, what happened to all the PDA individuals in our parents or our generation? Right. Because, yeah. but maybe the that 19, it's been there. 1950s weren't parenting so close right, <laughs> with right. Like traditional approaches. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? The growth, you know, the growth of social media, the pandemic. Yeah. I, I do think you're right. I think that is a big part of it, too. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And adult autistic advocates talking about having a traumatic experience with ABA. Oh, yeah. I did my dissertation on that. It was, uh, you, you know, did? Yeah. Well, sort of. I, 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 had, I had like about 15 young autistic adults. It was qualitative dissertation. It was just interviewing like about, you know, those that could communicate either through chatting, emails, phone calls, in-person visits, you know, Zoom, all the things where, you know, these are just sort of extended interviews where people could communicate about, you know, their experiences with therapy growing up, their ideas about the therapy, their experiences with therapists. I mean, this is how I really got into a more sort of like, we really, we need to be more neurodiversity affirming in our, in our care, in the care we provide and, and really sort of you know, put the the views of autistic adults front and center. And so it's not just my dissertation where, you know, people were talking about problems with, with ABA and compliance and bullying and not understanding sensory issues and misunderstanding behavior and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's been all of the, you know, lots of people speaking out about that's really important. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that was what your dissertation was on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what did you find? Oh, man, so much. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, the themes were around like greater acceptance, right? I mean, not not surprisingly, because this is something we, we sort of heard a lot from the, the autistic self-advocate community, right? Autistic people speaking out about their experiences of not wanting to be, you know, just sort of pathologized, people wanting sort of people to see, you know, strengths, not just challenges, you know, presuming competence was a big theme, right? Like not, you know, like talking about the kid while the kid's there, you know, but not really like as if the kid doesn't exist. I think that also intersects with, it intersects with both childism and ableism. I think that we, again, we just don't sort of give kids enough respect in all the ways. That's a whole nother topic potentially. But um, a bullying was a big thing. You know, people tell the importance that like to being believed and, and getting actual help that is concretely helpful understanding more about sensory experiences that I think, you know, maybe there, again, there's been incremental progress there, but still not enough. Like we still need a lot more people understanding what sensory processing challenges really look like. Cause again, if you're not thinking with that lens on, you might not understand why a kid can't come to the assembly, you know, or yeah. be in the crowd. And you might just think they're being oppositional uh and difficult, right. You know, and, and then we're missing something if that's the lens we have. Right. So if you have three hours, I can talk to you more details about the uh, <laughs> my dissertation. But those are the kinds of themes that that came up for sure. Wow. Okay. Last little tiny question follow up. Did yeah. anyone that you interviewed have positive things to say about their ABA experience? Just out of curiosity. No, um, but I do, I do think that I had a bit of a self selected group where you know it was people wanted to talk to me because they didn't like their ABA experiences. Got it, got to, it. To some extent. I don't think that's fair to say, but um, yeah, you know, and, and I know this isn't like a representative sample, you know, 15 interviews or whatever, like, you know, that's 15 people, but no, I, I didn't. I mean, I did, you know, and I have had this conversation with, there was one person I interviewed. I mean, this was like 12, 13, 14 years ago or something, but um, I do remember one person I interviewed, you know, talking about how, you know, they did have an ABA person, but you know, like, they didn't really see it as they didn't like, you know, ABA, you know, as a philosophy, but they did talk about how this person would like take them to the dentist's office just to like play there to get like used to it, mm -hmm. you know, or like helping kind of prime and prep, like this is what it's going to be like. And, you know, so I think that within, you know, like one can be broadly critical of the philosophy, but it doesn't mean that every single action one does, you know, despite it being, you know, covered under as an ABA service, 
there, there could still be something good that come, you know, that somebody does within that. So I guess I got like one example of that. <laughs> and, but yeah. I mean, there are families that talk about that too. So. Yeah. 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 This is not to judge BCBAs yeah. or families that choose that route. Yes. I, was, I mean, we have to do with what's covered, right? It's, it's also an access issue, right? Like we're not, you know, able to offer covered services and providers and people that like ABA is the primary thing that's covered, right? So that, yeah. that's a problem too. That's, you know, that's a broader advocacy issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So much to talk about. So much yes. fun talking to you. Great, Casey. I'm so, so glad we got a chance to chat. I feel like it's been a long time coming. It's been nice chatting with you over the years, but I feel like it's been, uh, you know, great to do this in a little bit more of a, I don't know, direct formal capacity or something. Yeah. Not that I feel that formal, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're pretty cash around here. Yes, um, me too. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Um, to those of you of listening, I am going to share in stories on Instagram and also for those of you on the email subscriber list, a way to submit questions to me and Dr. Klein so that we can put your questions front and center for our next fireside chat. Love um, it. Thanks Love for listening, it. everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Great to connect. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.